Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 19, He Who Overturns the Earth. Hello everyone, and once again, welcome to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. Before we begin, I need to thank B.T. Newberg for mentioning the show on his podcast. And what is his podcast, you ask? Well, this is where I ask the less mature audience to put on their earmuffs, because B.T.'s podcast is about sex. More specifically, the history of sex. On one of his latest episodes, B.T. discussed the Moche sex pots, which were quite graphic in detail. You must understand, everyone, I have family listening to this podcast, so I'm trying to keep this all PG-13. However, if you want to know more about Moche's sex pots and how those in the past got down and dirty, then check out B.T. Newberg's The History of Sex. Now then, in episode 17, we discussed the Inca religion that was really brought forth by Pachacuti. Inti had always been an important deity, but it was thanks to Pachacuti that the sun was now the principal god the Inca worshipped. And this is really what Pachacuti is most known for, for changing the order of things. Sure, he expanded the Inca borders, taking a small but organized state and expanding it into multiple valleys in the central Andes. But it is the fact that he changed the religion, administered his government, and created laws that he rightfully took the title Pachacuti. Now, episode 13 is titled Earth Shaker. But this is really a watered-down version of what the word Pachacuti actually means. In, real in reality, Pachacuti means cataclysm, or an overturning of the earth. So when Inca Yupanqui assumed that name Pachacuti, he became he who overturns the earth. And that is what he did. Pachacuti would be the one to overturn the Andean world and the order of things. He changed the way the Inca did nearly everything. Or at least that is the story that is stuck through time. And as we continue our journey through the Andes, we'll see other rulers who claim to be the next Pachacuti, leaders who believe they would overturn the earth. But for now, let's stick to this Pachacuti, the ninth Sapa Inca, as he takes stock of his citizens and determines how they shall be governed. Pachacuti, sitting in a stone palace surrounded by gold figurines and imagery, thought of his people. He had been Sapa Inca for some time now, and a soldier for even longer. But he never really knew how the rest of those in the city of Cusco actually lived. How did they behave, interacted with one another? What did they do when Inti was no longer overhead, and fire was your only way to see? Pondering this, he called over a few Yanakona, or servants. With them, he did the most curious thing. He walked out of the palace and onto the streets of Cusco. He didn't enter a litter, and nobody carried him away. Whenever a lord or Inca noble would come up to address him, Pachacuti would turn him away, signaling that he didn't want to be bothered. That night, Pachacuti did something even more bizarre. Dressing in the clothes of a commoner, he snuck out of the palace and roamed the streets of Cusco, by himself, in the dark. 
Pachacuti continued this for ten days, wandering the streets with his Yanakona during the day and lurking in the shadows at night, always watching, always listening, always observing. After ten days, Pachacuti sent messengers out and called his Caracas to travel to Cusco. Some time passed, but soon the Caracas of the Empire arrived in Cusco to meet with their Sapa Inca. With his governors assembled, Pachacuti addressed them and told them the laws he wanted to enact in his lands. They were as follows. First were the laws about the city. The buildings of Cusco were built very close together, a fact that still holds true in the modern day. The distance between buildings are little more than alleyways, and though the walls of the buildings were made of stone, the roofs were of thick thatch. This thatch was, of course, highly flammable. Any use of fire had to be handled with extreme care. One small accident could quickly result in a burning of the city, a fact that we will see much later in our story. If a fire happened, citizens would come and help put out the blaze in order to prevent it from spreading. But the person whose house was burned was to have their possessions taken by those who assisted in helping put out the blaze. If it turns out that the fire was truly an accident, then the possessions would be returned to the owner. If the fire started because of negligence, then the person would lose all of their possessions. But if the fire was set by another party, and if that person was caught, they'd be thrown in Kanja Gachi, the prison with the wild beasts. Continuing, Pachacuti stated that the stones of the buildings were to be replaced immediately if they fell, and the thatch roofs were to be replaced on a regular basis. The canals, the channels, and the fountains of Cusco were to be kept clear and clean as well. In regards to the colcas, or storehouses, of the city or town, Pachacuti ordered that they be constantly stocked with the harvest of that year. All sorts of goods, such as maize, potatoes, and other grains were kept there. But it wasn't just food items that were stored there. Pachacuti also ordered that clothes, footwear, and arms be stored there as well. Cieza de Leon provides the following account. They had the delegates and governors and many lodgings and great storehouses, full of necessary things, which were for provisioning the soldiers, because in one of them there were lances and other darts, and in others sandals, and in others the remaining arms they had. Moreover, some storehouses were filled with rich clothing, and others with more goods, and others with food, and all manner of supplies." These storehouses were quite a feat of engineering, as they were built in well-ventilated locations, with subfloors and drainage canals to help keep the colca cool and dry. The purpose was to extend the life of the perishable foods as long as possible. In some cases, untreated food could last a couple years, or even more for freeze-dried goods such as chuno, which are freeze-dried potatoes. According to the account of Batanzos, Pachacuti ordered that the food from the colcas be distributed to the citizens of the city or town every four months, while clothes would be distributed once a year. There was also a kind of night patrol instituted in the city of Cusco. These were more or less guards who kept an eye on things 
and I am people who entered or even exited the city at night. Those that did were detained, but just for the rest of the night. The next morning, they were questioned and had to explain why they were out at such an hour. Now, I've mentioned before that gold and silver that entered Cuzco would not be allowed to leave. Of course, you might think that one could smuggle some out through some sort of sack or hidden in bundles of some kind. However, guards were posted at all bridges leading to the city, and their job was to inspect any and all bundles leaving Cuzco. Any gold or silver found was promptly returned to the city. This next law, I think, is actually very thoughtful, whether it was passed by Pachacuti or another Inca. Small piles of straw would be placed under the bridges of Cusco. Not necessarily in the channel, as that would be in violation of the order to keep all the channels and canals clean, but perhaps right next to the bridge. These piles were there for newborns to be placed if their mothers were unable to care for them. Every morning, these piles were checked, and if a baby was present, they would be cared for by women whose job it was to care for such orphans. When grown, these orphans would be sent to the coca fields to cultivate the important crop for the Inca. This may not seem like the best outcome for these orphans, but but again, I think it was better than the alternative. Now with these next few laws, you'll get a glimpse into the economic and social structure of life under the Inca. To battle what has been described as laziness, Pachacuti declared that every person was to have a job, even children. Now this isn't to say children were sent into the mine to get silver or anything. However, young boys were expected to do things such as hunt birds for feathers, collect firewood, and forage for food. They were also to carry a sling at all times. This was to promote the skill in this weapon, so when they reached the age of 15, they would be ready to be called into the army. Girls also had tasks that they were supposed to complete, such as picking vegetables, collecting water, weaving cloth, and learning to cook. And when these children grew up, they were to take the same position held by their parents. So if your father was a farmer, you farmed. If they were a priest, you would become a priest. If they were a Karaka, you were expected to become a Karaka. I will hopefully tackle this issue of Inca society and its comparisons to communism in a later episode. But just know that the lack of upward mobility in Inca society is one argument some scholars and and economists use to criticize the Inca and the idea of communism or socialism in modern society. Again, we may get into the pitfalls of this argument in another episode, but I do want you to have this in the back of your head for whenever we get into this topic. Back to Pachacuti and his laws. Let's cover what the Sapa Inca said about adultery. There were so-called pleasure houses located outside of the city for men to visit. The women in these brothels were actually women who were captured during periods of war. These houses were meant for young and unmarried men, but that doesn't mean the occasional married man didn't go as well. If a married man was caught, though, he would be bound in the main square and publicly humiliated by his wife's family, who admonished him in front of everyone. But that was it. A soldier in the army was held to a higher standard. Any rape of a civilian would not be tolerated, and the offending soldier was publicly executed. Sleeping with the Mamakonas, 
the women who were married to Inti, was a great way to find yourself executed as well. Likewise, if a mamakona was found to have slept with a man, or if a woman was discovered as cheating on her husband, they were taken out of Cusco to where the two rivers, the Safi and the Tuyumayo, meet and were stoned. Sealing was obviously frowned upon in Inca society, but let's cover some of the punishments Pachacuti came up with for this act. Anyone caught stealing from a crop field would be stripped naked, and the clothes would be given to the person who caught the thief. However, this wasn't all, because with any sort of stealing, no matter how big or small, the thief would be, quote, tortured severely. The amount stolen, whatever it might be, would be returned to the owner by the thief. If whatever was stolen could not be returned, or the victim could not be compensated, the thief would become a yanakona, or servant. And this was a big deal, because a yanakona was not only a yanakona for their lives, but any children that he or she had would also become a yanakona. You basically sentence all of your descendants into perpetual servitude. But I suppose it could be worse. If the victim or lord didn't want the thief as a yanakona, the thief was simply executed. Again, soldiers were kept to high standards. If a soldier was caught stealing from a field, like a field of maize, the hand that plucked the ear would be cut off and placed on a pole for all passing by to see, still clasping the ear of maize. If livestock, such as a llama, was stolen, the soldier would be hanged and the llama slaughtered. The llama would be stuffed with straw and strung up in the field next to the dead thief. Anyone bearing false testimony or who wrongly accused individuals was not tolerated and would be executed. And I should say who carried out all these executions. And that does vary. If the son of the Sapa Inca committed a crime that was punishable by death, the Sapa Inca himself would carry out the deed. If a lord committed a similar crime, a family member of that lord would stand as the executioner. Even common citizens would also perform executions if the guilty party themselves was a common citizen. Finally, Pachacuti turned to his Caracas, for they too had certain laws to abide by. First, they were not to wear anything that would signify their rank, unless they were given special permission from the Inca. And these Caracas would at times receive gifts and clothes and such that they could be worn to signify their rank. But unless they were given those gifts, they had to dress like everyone else. The Caracas were to keep their colcas and tambos well stocked. And tambos were similar to colca storehouses. However, they were used only by the army as they marched through a territory. Thus, Pachacuti wanted them well stocked at all times. Pachacuti also required that all important roads be well maintained and for any bridges to keep guards at the crossings. And while they were there, the guards of the bridges were supposed to spend their time weaving and braiding rope to make any repairs necessary to their bridge. The Caracas were also to keep track of what every person was bringing in during harvest, so there could be no idleness in the empire. And we'll get into how they kept these records in a future episode. But I want to make this clear that this isn't food being taken away 
from individual families and their fields. These fields were not touched. I'm talking about the fields that are state-owned, that were worked with Mita labor. The Caracas were to also inspect their borders and maintain the stones that marked the boundaries of their territory. If it turned out that a province needed additional land due to the population increasing, a painting of the landscape was ordered so new boundaries could be determined by the Inca. Regular reports were to be made by the Caracas to Cusco, so the Sapa Inca would know what was happening in his empire at all times. In his next law, Pachacuti declared that only the Sapa Inca could marry his sister, and this was to keep the bloodline of Inti pure. Finally, he named a Apo Inca Ranid Ramarek, which means Lord who speaks in place of and in the name of the Inca. This person would be the one who actually heard the business brought before the Inca, and then they informed the Sapa Inca when the latter saw fit. And I can't quite confirm this, but this may have been the same person who would act as the de facto governor of Cusco when the Sapa Inca was elsewhere in the empire. Now there are more laws and orders that Pachacuti disseminated to his Caracas, but I can't possibly cover them all in a single episode. But a single episode is what you will get, as we covered the more prominent laws. Plus, I'm sure you don't want to hear me continue to rattle off various laws. Next time, we'll get a peek into how the Inca were able to govern what was quickly becoming an empire. The Inca Court, next time on A History of the Inca. (laughs) 